first of all, I just want to say ngā mahi nui ki a koutou tōku kāpua o te whakapono keiko nei, kua pūpū mai keiko nei ki tēnei hāhi e tēnei ata. Ngā mahi, ngā mahi, tēnei te mihi ki a koutou. Ngā mahi hoki ki a tōku pāpa, he kai kōrero i tēnei hāhi, ki a Matt, rātou ko Amanda hoki, ngā kai kōrero o tēnei hāhi, kei rongai i tēnei kaupapa, o te whakapono o te atua. Ngā mahi nui ki a rātou. Just a greeting to you all. You are my cloud of witnesses in my faith journey. I just wanted to greet you and thank you for being here. Also to those who have spoken on our series of faith, to my dad who started us off, and to Matt and Amanda who have also gone before me. Just want to acknowledge them. So lovely to have you all this morning. Let's crack in. The clock is ticking. All right. In preparing for his role in the movie Fury, about an American tank crew. The actor Shia LaBeouf, he joined the U.S. National Guard. He lived on base for a month, became a chaplain's assistant in the 41st Infantry, he got baptized, and he also got a tattoo. He also, and I like this one, refrained from bathing for four months while shooting the film. Awesome. <laughs> now, in preparing for my sermon this morning, I confess that I didn't limit my diet to quail. And I didn't carry a staff throughout. Though, I did climb Kite Hill a couple of times, and my mum said she thought I was pretty special when I was born. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I did recently stand barefoot in front of my fireplace with that recent cold snap. And I also set my chin to task to try and produce the most Moses-like beard I could muster. So I hope that all of my training is going to pay off this morning. Shall we pray? <laughs> Our Father... How good it is to be in your presence. How good it is to work with you, not just as your servant, but by your grace as part of your family. And this morning, each of us here, we desire to know your nature. We're here, each of us, to seek your face. So I invite you to speak clearly to us as we open your word to give. Amen. Yes. We're turning again to the book of Hebrews. Specifically, chapter 11. This is the fourth week in a series of seven messages on Hebrews, just chapter 11. If you miss any of the series, they are or will all be available, thanks to Malcolm, our resident techie, up on the church website. So feel free to check them out there, or even indulge in multiple listenings if you like. Um, let's get straight in. Verse 23. By faith... Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. Moses. So much is written from and so much can be said about him. He's ascribed authorship of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. 
He led the Israelites out from generations of slavery. He is the one who received an incredibly exhaustive revelation from God on who God is, how he is to be worshipped, what he expects from his people, and so on. If you were to stand on a mountain at the time of Jesus and look back at the biblical horizon of the Old Testament, few would stand out as prominently on the horizon as Moses would. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 5 even says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Furthermore, the authorship of the book of Hebrews is one of the most enigmatic of all the New Testament books. And scholars love a good mystery to sink their teeth into. So in terms of material, I've really hit the jackpot this morning. On that note, before we go and set the table, let's put down the tablecloth. Uh, There are several suggestions to authorship and context for the book of Hebrews. But the best I've read is from H.W. Montefiore in Black's New Testament commentaries, where he builds a strong hypothesis that Apollos wrote it while he was in Ephesus to exhort the church or parts of it in Corinth, sometime around AD 52 to 54. While other commentaries settle on somewhere between AD 60 and 70, before the destruction of the temple under Vespasian and Titus. Check it out yourself and see what you guys think. But since it can't be anywhere near proven for authorship, perhaps the most certain answer that we have on the authenticity of the book is that by faith, we can see God's primary authorship in Hebrews, that he ultimately wrote it for Christians like us through the ages, and that he still uses it to speak by his Holy Spirit to us today. Amen? Amen. And yet despite all this incredible material I've got, using great sweeping brushstrokes, the writer of Hebrews pulls out only seven verses to add to his fast-paced narrative on faith. Only seven verses. So fittingly today, we're going to start right at the beginning. Verse 23. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's evil. I really identify with this verse. I often reflect that my good looks have been a miraculous provision as well. Thank you, Merida. I needed an amen to that. But actually, as someone who ministers with children and as a parent, it's interesting that we start not with Moses' faith, but that the faith of his parents looks something special into Moses' life. I read that an apt translation for the word faith throughout Hebrews is the word toughness. Can we say that together? Let's say it tougher. Toughness. Thank you. And if you remember one word from this morning, let it be the word toughness. By their toughness, Moses was hidden by his parents. It took a lot of toughness from Moses' parents, Amram and Joshebed, to grow their family under the Pharaoh's edict. Because if it was a boy, it would be under a death sentence from birth. No wonder they waited some years after Miriam's birth, who would have had to be several years Moses' senior, for her to follow the basket and talk to the bathing princess that we read about in Exodus chapter 2. It took toughness in all these things to work against the Pharaoh, and incredible toughness and faith to send your baby out onto the Nile in a floating basket. But something you do 
when home is the mouth of a shark. Which encourages me to take my opportunities encouraging the faith of those entrusted to me. That rather than from parenting from a position of fear of the worst, let me make my decisions underpinned with a sureness of hope. And for those things beyond my control, let me turn my eyes to Jesus, the perfecter and author of our faith stories. Two weeks ago, when a car came careering around the corner we live on and wiped out two of our trees, you can see them up there, two harakiki bushes, our neighbor's tree, and also collected our letterbox as well. My strongest emotion was anger towards that driver and what could have happened if my children were standing out the front of our house that Saturday morning. And I could feel that raging, powerless anger start melting away into anxiety at the what if. So I had to talk to God seriously about that and keep talking to him about it. Because without faith in the fact that God also holds my children in the palm of his hand and that he is the God who says, let the little children come to me and do not stop them, then gone also is the joy of parenting. Though Josheped had to eventually say goodbye to Moses once he was of age to enter the princess's household, I can barely imagine the joy she would have felt each and every time she nursed her little boy. All right, one verse, one point. We're going great, guys. Where do we go next? Verse 34. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. Nā te whakapono a mohi, i tōna koumātuatanga, ki hai i pai ki a kia he tamana te tamahine a parao, ki tāna hoki, ko te māmai tahi me te atua iwi, he mea pai ke atu ki ngā ahureka o te hara ki a riro mo te tahiwā. Ki tōna whakāro ko te te wainga mo te karaiti, he taonga nui ke atu i ngā taonga o ihipa. I titero atu hoki ia ki te utu ka homai. So we've jumped 40 years into the future. Like I said, sweeping brushstrokes. Now, baby Moses, according to Stephen's last speech in Acts chapter 7, has grown into an extremely well-educated, intellectually sharp, strong man, and ironically, as we read later, even an able speaker. And at this point, we see Moses, a man with the world of opportunities at his feet, come to realize that what was actually at his feet were his family, his Israelite brothers and sisters, suffering under the yoke of slavery. And with this burden to help his people, one day Moses, he sees an Egyptian mistreating one of the Israelites. And so he goes in to help. He rescues the Israelite man, and thinking no one is watching, he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. In that moment, Moses, as Hebrews describes to us, kills off his association with the Egyptian court and all of its wealth temptations, political aspirations, and pleasures. He has now firmly placed himself in the Israelite camp, in the camp of suffering, but the camp of future promise. Because the reality for the Israelites in front of Moses was not one of victory and power. He was in the camp of chronic suffering, 
woe upon suffering, intergenerational. How mentally balmy is Moses? What a nut job. It's like he took his $100,000 bet off the All Blacks and put it on Georgia to win the World Cup. Moses has success dripping off him. Yet for the call of God on his life, the call for deliverance that was steadily growing in the strength of its voice. For Moses to stay in the royal court was sin. Verse 25. Choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's a tough choice. The writer of Hebrews first lets us know that for the people of God, ill treatment is not a foreign concept, nor completely out of place. He puts them together in the sentence, and he doesn't even seem to blink. Next, it seems the key thrust of the word sin here is not just talking about lust or murder or the other clearly noticeable behaviors, but the sin of affiliation, even to Pharaoh's daughter. The sin of success and preserving his environment of comfort despite God's call. Most say that these things aren't sinful in and of themselves, should be taken as good news for us in the Western Church. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, it sums up the situation for Moses, just as it challenges us in our situation. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment that was passed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to its own vomit. Quoting Proverbs chapter 26 there. This is the huge theme of the whole book of Hebrews, which I once thought was quite removed from our context and culture. It actually touches on a sensitive nerve for today. And how confusing is God? For sometimes, for some people, God's blessing manifests in material wealth. Like Abraham who even features in the earlier part of this very same chapter. And for others, like Moses, God commands them to leave it all. Don't take a cent. Leave it all. What a powerful challenge to us that speaks volumes to our culture of success and comfort. Lord, forgive me for the times I've looked over my shoulder and desired the things I once willingly gave up in order to follow your call. So there was no going back for Moses. No time to fret about FOMO or fear fear of missing out. No way to satisfy himself now on the vomit of Egypt. Moses is on a roll. Buoyed by his deadly, serious commitment to God's people, he tries to help out again. Rather than being received as a leader and a champion, Moses is utterly rejected and literally pushed away. And what's worse, like it was already on the front page of Woman's Day, Everyone seems to know the full details of his dirty, dead Egyptian deed. Glad you haven't read that edition. But moving on to verse 27, here in the story come to a little bit of a tight spot. It's a tight spot for Moses. It's like he turned down a huge contract to play for a Japanese rugby team to keep the door open to the All Blacks, and now Steve Hansen and the selectors have overlooked him. Nobody wants him. It's also a tight spot because Exodus and Hebrews seem to say the opposite thing. Exodus 2.14 says, Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian. 
But Hebrews in verse 27 says, By faith he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger. But it seems logical that Moses would be afraid of Pharaoh after this kind of incident, because Pharaoh did want to kill him. But the Exodus doesn't account, doesn't exactly say what Moses was afraid of. My reading of the word fear here in these verses is not so much an unpleasant feeling or emotion caused by the threat of harm, but more in regard to the action connected with that, connected with that knowledge. Moses' parents acted in a way that, although they surely had concerns, they continued with the course their faith compelled them to in identifying or in, sorry, in defying Pharaoh. In the same way, Moses defied Pharaoh. Stephen's account of Moses in Acts 7 adds to this by leading us to think that because of Moses' faith in the future redemption of Israel, he continued on to Midian in order to fight another day. And that possibly is what Moses was afraid of. Failure. Or that he had missed his opportunity. Think for a moment about the Israelites. According to tradition, it was 40 years later that Moses received the call back to Egypt at the burning bush. Can we think of another time they had to wait 40 years to take up the opportunity God put before them? For me, this is a fear that I can grasp, and maybe one you do too. That having been given so much in my upbringing, and being born into a heritage of faith, will I have what it takes, up here and in here, to take the tough opportunities God sends my way? I can count several times when I have it. And just like my faith story, Moses has plenty of failures that he could dwell on. The writer of Hebrews goes on to omit a lot of these ups and downs in Moses' life. As painful as it is, I think it's worth taking a brief moment to consider. It omits the 40 years in Midian, where our big city-educated royal family intellectual up-and-comer is working the flocks. It omits his marriage and starting a family where his firstborn's name, Gershom, reminds Moses that he still feels like an alien living in a foreign land. It emits the burning bush moment where God dramatically reveals himself, reveals his unspeakable name, and declares his redemptive purpose. And Moses' response is captured beautifully in Exodus chapter 4 when he replies, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. What a wonderful, patient God we serve. Hebrews omits the glory fading on Moses' face and the various rebellions of the Israelites in the wilderness, including even the one from his own brother and sister. It omits the 40 years in the desert of, are we there yet? The life of faith is not exempt from struggle, nor insecurity, nor persecution, nor pain, nor illness. In J. Duker's book, Who Will Come Home, he reminds us of one of Aotearoa's pioneering missionaries, Henry Williams. He too lived a life that mirrors the ups and downs of Moses' faith story. Henry Williams was an ex-naval officer who together with his wife Marianne and their three children put themselves forward for missionary service with the CMS. They arrived in Aotearoa, New Zealand in August 1823. Taking control of the mission station at Kōrerarako in the Bay of Islands, Williams quickly stamped out missionary involvement in the musket trade. He shifted the focus from trying to civilize Māori and teaching them specific trade skills to himself learning the Māori language and culture. Sixteen years later, 
1839, enter dun, 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 the Wakefield Brothers and the New Zealand Company, who defied orders from England and began buying up huge swaths of land in order to create a British utopia in the South Pacific and make a fat buck in the process. At the same time, Te Ropura's son, Tamihana, and his cousin Martini sailed from Kapiti Coast all the way up to Kōrirāraka to find a missionary for their people. Henry Williams nominated Octavius Hadfield, the unlikely missionary and sickly asthmatic, and they sailed south together towards Ōtaki, where Hadfield presided over the beautiful Raniatia Church, which our youngest daughter, one of her middle names, is named after. On the journey, Williams witnessed firsthand the dodgy land purchases made by the New Zealand Company around the Wellington region. Williams was infuriated, and he set sail to challenge the Wakefields, who were anchored off Kapiti Island there. In a bizarre twist, though, Williams was blown off course in a storm and landed at the top of the South Island, only to see that New Zealand Company had already made purchases around Nelson, the Sounds, Kaikoura, and eventually claimed most of the South Island. Settlers kept coming, and he could sense his years of work with Māori being undone by his countrymen, who cared neither for Christ nor for Māori. On 5th of December 1939, Williams left Octavius Hadfield stationed at Ōtaki, and he started his 40-day trip across land from Ōtaki to Tauranga, then he caught a boat and returned to Kōrirāraka. On route, he saw and heard the same concerns from Māori about the relentless European quest for land. Williams finally arrived back home on January the 18th, 1840, just 11 days before Captain Hobson arrived to secure a treaty with the natives. Henry Williams and his son Edward were given one night to translate the treaty, and it was up to him to explain it to Māori who gathered on the 5th of February at Waitangi. Williams was well respected by Māori, and he pushed the need for a partnership between Māori and the Queen in order to regulate European behaviour and safeguard Māori interests. But everyone was still surprised the next morning, though, when the chiefs were all ready to sign. Nine copies of the treaty toured the country for signatures, and all but one was brokered by missionaries. They were the ones who had left the comforts of Egypt, so to speak to serve Māori and build relationships with them. They were the bridge builders. This was the very first time the British Empire had signed a treaty with any indigenous group, promising protection and granting them British citizenship. And it came from missionaries who threw their eyes of faith in equal partnership between Māori and Pākehā. Hebrews 27, For he persevered as though he saw him who was invisible. So far, so good for Henry Williams. But sadly, his story finishes with the same type of rejection Moses faced. In the antithesis of missionary motivation, immediately after the signing of Tiriti or Waitangi, the Crown flooded New Zealand with immigrants through assisted passage. They started wars, they imprisoned Māori without any trial nor conviction. They confiscated huge blocks of Māori land and assumed authority that was never given through tertiary. And the missionaries became a bitter taste of betrayal in the mouths of Māori 
Williams once wrote to his brother, the treaty is the most important document ever signed in this part of the world. It has the potential to bring Māori and Pākehā together as one people to build a great nation. Before his eyes, the dream was turning to dust. The Wakefield brothers stirred up a defamatory voice against the William brothers, both in Britain and among the settlers. Remember his good friend Octavius Hadfield? He was once described as the most hated man in New Zealand for his vocal opposition to the Crown's illegal behaviour. The new governor, George Gray, also ill-treated the Williams brothers with unfair accusations. Henry was subsequently unduly dismissed from the CMS and he was devastated. Although his brother took up his defence back in England and he was reinstated four years later, he never really got over it. He was broken. His last words before he passed were, how cruel, how cruel. To to heap scorn upon the ashes, a groundswell of scepticism and anger towards the missionaries has grown from revisionist histories such as Ruth Ross's paper in 1972, where she accused the missionaries of deliberately misleading Māori and Tetiriti through their translation. We know Henry Williams was a man of faith. But he didn't get to see the actualization of his sure hope and equal partnership between Māori and Pākehā in his lifetime. What a cruel ending. Was he wrong? Was he overzealous? Hebrews 11, verse 26, remind us that Moses was looking ahead to the reward. The Māori rendering of this verse is excellent, let me say. I atu hoki ia ki te utu the English for me makes it seem like Moses is waiting for a sizable personal compensation. The sense is completely different in Te Reo Māori. Notice the word utu, which many of you will be familiar with. It doesn't only refer to revenge, as revenge is only one application of the greater concept. Utu could also be exacted by giving of a gift to a wrong party. But the underlying idea is that of balance, or to make complete. When relationships were broken, or state of affairs was untenable, the role of Utu would be to bring peace and completion back into the brokenness. My conviction is that, though Henry Williams is long past, his faith was looking forward, so far forward to even reach past this current generation's efforts, to time when we do experience the reward of restorative partnership in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where God will ultimately bring Utu into our brokenness. And we're joining Moses in his story. It gets worse for Moses, our model of faith. There is cruel tragedy in his story too. His defining failure is summarized in Deuteronomy 30. On that very day, the Lord addressed Moses as follows. Ascend this mountain of the Abirim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites for a possession. You shall die there on the mountain that you ascend and shall be gathered to your kin, as your brother Aaron died on the Mount Hor and was gathered to his kin. Because both of you, and get this, broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribeth Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, by failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites. Although you may view the land from a distance, you shall not enter it 
the land I am giving to the Israelites. This is the moment where, burdened with a continuous rebellion of the Israelites, in frustration, Moses twice hits the rock with his staff to get the water out of it, rather than to just speak to the rock to get the water out. You can read the original incident in Numbers chapter 20. And in a fascinating twist, God tells Moses, it is because of this event you, Moses, will not enter the promised land. God doesn't say, because you are a murderer, Moses. That's it. God doesn't say, because you are so feebly insecure at the burning bush and you dishonored my name, you're through, Moses. He says, you broke faith with me among the Israelites. You broke faith with me, Moses. You failed to defend my holiness. What seems like a minor misdemeanor to us is actually the most crucial for God. I mean, Moses still got the water for the people, but not in the way God clearly outlined. We've wound the clock back centuries from when Hebrews was written, and here we find the exact same priority on faith from God our Father. It seems that our faith must not only instruct what we do, but also the way we do it. God isn't messing around. God took it extremely personally when Moses broke faith with him, when instead God wanted to see how his toughness of faith would reach into the future. And so Moses stuffs up. Done. No promised land. No bringing Māori and Pākehā together in true partnership for Henry Williams either. We've confirmed it twice, people. A cruel but fitting end atop the mountain. It is cruel. It is cruel. Full stop. Is that what our God is like? Or is there more? Yes, there are two verses more. Verse 28. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea, as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. Now te whakapono ia i whakariti ai te kapinga, i te ringi hanga toto, kei pā ki a rātou te kaiwhakamati i ngā whānau mātāmua. Nā te whakapono rātou i haere ia rā te moana whero me te mea e ngā runga ana i te whenua maroki. A, i te whakamātauranga i ngā ihipaina ki te perahoromia a ki rātou. Just as Henry Williams' faith still looks forward, these two verses cast my mind forward, way forward. Today, we still express our faith with the institutions of communion, which Jesus based on the Passover, and baptism, which takes significant meaning from the Israelites passing through the waters of the Red Sea, from death into new life. Like a relay throw and back down, the faith of the writer of Hebrews draws out two parts of Moses' story that reach all the way past his time and into our time. And that is what faith can do. It can lift a finite timeline of a singular lifetime and transplant it into God's eternal timeline. What was once measured by the standard of a generation is now re-evaluated on an eternal scale. Brothers and sisters, we have an eternal destination. Faith is in the family along with hope and love. Faith is enduring. It has no best before date. 
Because our faith in G- is in Jesus, and he is resurrected and eternal. Our faith in him can endure also. Now, contrary to how Moses would have felt at the end of his lifetime, failure is not the finale. It is grace. Moses' story doesn't actually end atop Mount Nebo. As we finish today, will you turn with me to the New Testament book of of Matthew, chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses, there he is, and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Who would have guessed? Here is Moses making a stellar appearance in the sequel when we thought he died at the end of the first movie. What we once thought ended in the dusty barrens of Mount Nebo, just 40 kilometers east of Jerusalem, so close yet so far from the promised land, actually ends right in the epicenter of promise, at the Messiah's side. Moses never pitched his tent there in the promised land. Yet the thing he waited and waited for, the redemption of his people, is right there in front of him. He is standing with and talking to the exact bullseye of God's promise, where humanity is finally liberated through the person of Christ Jesus. And how telling is it that the Pharisees of Jesus' day were so preoccupied with the shadows of the real thing and interpretations of the law of Moses, trying to trap Jesus in the most difficult details of the law, that their faithlessness led them to blindness. As they were busy rejecting Jesus, they thought Moses was on their side. They thought Moses was in their pocket. But he was right by Jesus' side, experiencing his fullness. How does our Moses get there? Ups and downs Moses. Two hits on the rock Moses. Didn't immigration already take his passport away? It was in the moments like these I can sometimes get a little overwhelmed when I consider the righteousness, the beauty, the unwarranted grace of God. The grace that he has given to his people, the grace that he has also extended to me. Lord Jesus, I am a two-hits-on-the-rock type of disciple. Yet you invite me one day, like Moses, to share in your glory. Because you delight in showing mercy. What I see now only by faith was made visible. For we persevere as though we see him who is invisible, just as Moses did. Be encouraged, friends. Though our journey has struggles, and failures, and all manner of cruelty. Let us hear God's call 
and continue in it with an enduring toughness of faith. A faith that reaches into our eternal future, despite ill treatment, knowing that the unsurpassable grace of our Lord Jesus will bring us as well, surely, into his promise. Amen.